Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with L.P. McMahon. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. Two SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land, and treaty was never made in Australia. Laurie McMahon wears many hats. He's a professor of nephrology at Monash University, has travelled and lectured around the world. Today, he joins us to discuss his debut novel, As Swallows Fly. In rural Pakistan, Malika is entrusted to the care of Aisha after her parents are killed in an accident. She grows up alongside another survivor, Tahir, gradually becoming a part of the village life. As Malika is entrusted with more responsibility, it emerges that she has an extraordinary intelligence. Malika's talents are destined to take her away from the village until a violent betrayal threatens her entire world. In Melbourne, Kate is piecing together her life after the death of her mother. She's always lent on her career as a surgeon and has little to show in the way of personal relationships. When a young woman from Pakistan enters her life, will she finally learn to open up to others? Join me as we discover L.P. McMahon's As Swallows Fly. Laurie, thanks for joining me on the show and, and congratulations on your novel. Thank you and a pleasure to be here, Andrew. I'm really interested to get into this because in As Swallows Fly, you entwine narratives. In rural Pakistan, Malika is entrusted to the care of Aisha after her parents are killed in an accident. In Melbourne, Kate is piecing together her life after the death of her mother. But these are just snapshots, and I was hoping perhaps you could introduce us to your twin protagonists. So Malika, we more or less start with her. Apart from a brief snippet, we, we're introduced to Malika first. She is about 10 or 11 when we first meet her, perhaps a little older, 11 or 12. She is orphaned, as you state, um, and to all intents and purposes, kind of learns to accommodate with the village. Um, and then things start to become apparent, and that's uh, really a testament to her um, scientific uh, brilliance. Um, and that starts to shine through, and that sets up the, the whole, a whole sequence of events, which uh, event which uh, results in her being sent across uh, to Melbourne. An awful thing happens to her uh, just before she uh, comes across, and that sets the scene for her introduction uh, to Kate. Uh, Kate is uh, a successful but very flawed, uh, internally flawed, uh, plastic surgeon in Melbourne, and she makes the distinction of um, being a plastic surgeon from a cosmetic surgeon. Through the uh, relationship that slowly develops with uh, Malika, that Kate is able to establish a, a friendship, which is something she's never really been able to do. And then also with the assistance of some um, mentors, uh, is gradually able to uh, emerge uh, as, a, uh, as a full person. In a way, they, they both save each other. Um, and uh, it's really a study of, um, through these characters, it's really intended to be a study of understanding how we live with 
our flaws um, and how they can absolutely entrap us until possibly we have the good fortune to be able to be offered uh, a way out. Um, but um, that's sort of that's the development and the exploration within the book. Throughout the book, we meet characters who devote themselves to one thing that is very important in their lives, perhaps sacrifice for their profession. Now, Kate, as you mentioned, she's a skilled surgeon, and she has to negotiate not only the intricacies of her work, but the power and the politics of her profession. I wondered how your own medical career had influenced your writing, and did you want to explore something of the personalities of people who are drawn to sacrifice so much for their own personal, uh, sorry, for their own professional uh, world? Yes, I think you. I think that's exactly right. Um, um, Kate does sacrifice, but but it's it's a, a it's a twin-edged blade in insofar as although she sacrifices a lot, she's also able to, uh, in a way, hide there um, and live her life through the sacrifice and give to other people because it distracts her from her own life and being fully who she is. And that's that's kind of the uh, you, you. It's a very common thing to see in, in medicine where people. Uh, do uh, literally lose themselves in their in their work, um, do great things and help help an enormous number of people, but the uh, often it's at the expense of their own personal development. Um, and I'm at uh, I don't like to admit it all that often, but I'm I'm at an age now where I can see that um, you can you can give your whole life to medicine, but at some point that that is going to end, and what do you have beyond it as a person uh, is a question that uh, that I and uh, a number of my, my friends are uh, discussing uh, these days little by little. What have we got to do, and how do we have a life outside medicine? But it's a very common trait, um, and it, it, it carries an enormous amount of good and, and satisfaction and, and worth, and it's not to demean it, it's just to... Uh, look on it as part of a balance rather than the uh, in its entirety as, as being self-sufficient. It's an incredibly important question, I feel, as well, because increasingly I don't know if it's if it's our, our circumstance in this country or it's definitely a product of the, the shifting of work and life with the, the COVID pandemic and definitely our modern condition that this, this veneration of hard work and achievement over things like um, our personal life and and our leisure time. I mean, you've you have an incredibly impressive CV, Laurie, that you've you've added um, your as swallows fly to. Have you found in your life any secrets to secrets to balancing those worlds? I think probably I have. Um, I've been more aware of it than, than perhaps some of my peers over the years. Uh, I think my travels, uh, particularly through. Uh, underdeveloped countries um, and emerging nations has been a, a significant factor, and that's actually one aspect of the uh, of the book, which which uh, I think is there if if you want to look at it, which is the 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 stark difference between life in Pakistan and in this isolated village and life in Melbourne, and what matters and what happens, and um, and yet. Um, uh, the people still show uh, enormous courage and hope and uh, willingness to live their life. Um, 
Uh, and I think, you know, they're the sorts of lessons that we can learn and which influence our own life and have certainly influenced mine. Um, I have uh, studied um, martial arts for many years and in recent years the uh, the effects of um, and the benefits of um, yoga and meditation um, have also influenced where I'm at uh, and I think uh, give me pathways after um, my um, my professional life will finish um, but at the same time it's it's enabled me I think to be a, a better physician and a, and a more give my patients a, a, a more uh, balanced approach to uh, life and uh, and and illness. So I, I think there are multiple benefits, but but it does take awareness and it does take uh, a degree of um, sacrifice by not uh, burying yourself in medicine. I was yeah. interested in what you had to say there about your travels and your exposure to other cultures through those travels. And uh, let's go. I want to see if we can go full circle here without giving away too much of of Malika's mm-hmm. story, but very much she becomes a part of a village that becomes a home that doesn't feel qu- quite like home after she loses her parents at a very young age. And as we see yep. her grow, we see her her intellect and her abilities starting to set her apart from her adopted home, but also ingratiating her into that home. I wondered. I wondered then if it is simply uh, perhaps a matter of that personal perception too, and we have to make that effort to be a part of a place. I think so. Uh, I think that. Um, I mean, one of the one of the reasons that uh, Malik is able to um, be accepted by the place is, of course, that they can see the benefits from welcoming her rather than um, than not. Um, but. Uh, and because other other children and, and the village itself can can benefit from what she's able to do, but um, but I think also uh, she's someone who's seeking truth um, and is not setting herself up in any way, and I think is is prepared to be part of the village and in fact welcomes that part herself because the village itself is is um, a, a critical part of her own identity. Um, in the in the absence of a family, so um, I, there's this um, mutual interdependence going on, which uh, which gives her a strong base and helps her establish uh, her sense of uh, of identity, uh, which she then brings with her when she comes across to um, to Melbourne. Um, and I think uh, I think that that's seen, and and along with that, of course, uh, which which I think is uh, uh, typical but but um, uh, very typical of people who who are as bright uh, perhaps as Malika is this strength of mind as well so that whole combination is uh, is there in one package in this in this small girl now both Malika's and Kate's stories are shrouded by acts of violence that are committed mm. by men at a very young age mm. that have shaped the ways that they move in the world, the way that they relate to the world. Undoubtedly, you weren't intending um, where this where this book would land in the public consciousness and public debate. But, I mean, this has always yeah. been an essential discussion, but it's even more so at the moment. How did you want As Swallows Fly to enter this discussion around power and violence? 
Yes, it's it's a it's a deep question, uh, and um, and it, you know, speaking as uh, uh, a member of a of a, um, a gender that that has not uh, covered itself in in glory in any shape or form uh, in regards to this for for far too long a time. Um, uh, I think that the as you say, it was not written uh, with the current um, uh, current uh, dramas uh, and uh, the the intensity of, of feeling that's apparent now, of course. But I think it is common, and that's part of what what it's all about at the moment. I think it is very common, and it has been completely underrepresented. Uh, and I think that um, almost serendipitously. Uh, Kate in particular uh, shows the long-term consequences uh, and the battle and the and the personal personal um, uh, trials that she has to go through and the and the and the, the uh, well potentially lifelong impact that uh, that it's had on her. So uh, it's it's an abhorrence, of course. Um, and uh, from my own perspective, I I um, I think that there is. Uh, uh, every need to galvanise the community so that we can uh, live as we as we as we can if we give it that chance. But but um, it's not meant by the same token. It's not meant to be a direct study of that. I think it is it is um, in a way um, uh, it, it's an instrument uh, within which uh, Kate has to function. Yeah. I mean, I guess we we can never choose our moment. We can only choose the way we meet it. And I was very interested in in the ways that you allowed that sort of backgrounding of Kate's character. And I want to I want to speak generally here because one, I, I like readers to be able to discover a novel, um, but also I don't want this to go too particularly towards a particular uh, a conception of violence. But I, I like the way you allowed that to be a part of Kate's character, but not to overshadow who she is as a person no and I think this I think this speaks to to the strength of person that Kate is as well that um, that somehow or other she's able although although scarred and flawed by by these events uh, she she's able to carry that and still give to her patients and it's it's the life that that gives her and we talked about her burying herself in in medicine before, but it's the life that it gives her that I think is a strong uh, a counterbalance for for these um, scars that she she also carries, and I think that 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 to me is, is quite evident that the you know sure the, the what she obtains what she gets from helping these these other people is a very important part of her character, and and if she didn't have it, um, I don't know how she would have uh, survived. Now, I felt in my reading that relationships were at the heart of As Swallows Fly. Now, there is also some terrific momentum and suspense, but I do want to leave that for the reader to discover, and I'd like to explore a little bit of these relationships. There is a moment, there is a moment in the book where Kate's mentor and partner, Stephen, reflects on his own illness, and he says, I'll have more respect for my patients in the future. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the, the different types of healing relationships that you portray Yes. Yes. Well. Well. 
Um, you're looking at the at the mentality there of a of a, of a uh, very successful, very senior plastic surgeon, and there are a number of factors that are at play there. First of all, um, uh, not all surgeons are, are renowned for their um, uh, for their capacity to empathise. Um, many do, of course, but but as a as a specialty, surgeons see themselves as um, sometimes as, as Performing a function and moving on, um, and leaving the uh, leaving the empathic support to to others, um, and to some extent um, that's okay. Uh, to some extent, but I think that what Stephen was uh, was discovering, and before going there, the the other aspect is that the the role that uh, the surgeon plays, I think, has changed. So Stephen's a very senior um, man and practitioner. And uh, meaning he's quite old, uh, in actual fact. And uh, I placed him in his early, early to uh, at least early sixties. Um, and he came up in a system where it was that was the norm. And I think that does reflect uh, a lot of the older surgeons around the place where it was um, cut, cut and move on. Um, I think that has changed and is changing, and it should. But the um, but I think also what he was expressing was that he realised just from uh, being a patient what it meant, and he had never had to do that before. And that's very common um, when doctors get sick. Um, you know, illness is something that that uh, other people have to bear, and we try and help them help them do that, and and if possible, cure them. Um, but it's only when we become patients ourselves uh, with significant illness. I mean. Uh, that we start to understand the other side and the, the sheer sense of frustration and helplessness and limitation uh, that we touch on but then move on from because there's always more patients to see. So that's where Stephen was coming from. I guess illness is a great leveller in that way. and Oh, oh enormous, yes. And, and exposes, yes. exposes uh, I don't want to actually frame this as vulnerabilities, but because I don't want us to think of needing other people as in any way being a weakness. But I'll move now to M- Malika's story, which is filled with extraordinary extraordinary violence. We've mentioned first the death of her parents, then uh, the attack that happens very mm. early in the book. She mm. is she is essentially in both of those um, acts at a young age. Le- she's beholden to the kindness of others. She also has extraordinary resources herself and resources that she is able to turn outwards and, and help others, which she then comes to rely on when she comes to Australia. Did you want, through Malika, to explore that idea of, of community and, and the coming togetherness of relationships, it's almost, a, almost a polar opposite of what we just talked about with Stephen and his individualism? Mm. Well, I think that one of the things when I was um, in my, my times in Asia um, and, and, and living in, in Pakistan was... Um, what what to me was was crystal clear and and so different from what we live with and expect in our community was there was exactly as you put it the interdependence um, of being together um, because they are all in this this vast almost like a, a sea of, of I'm not quite even sure how to frame it but they. The, the sense of control that we expect uh, is not there. They, they almost see themselves as 
living life while they can and hoping for the best. Now, we do that too, but our expectations are so much higher. But I remember um, uh, an example comes to mind of a, of a young couple who brought in their, their child, um, their only child at the time, um, with gastro. And uh, this is at the small hospital that I worked at. And uh, and they were desperately worried for him. And he was a, a sick little boy. Um, and uh, anyway, we, we got to work on him and, and, um, and nursed him back to health. And they were so grateful. And uh, I still remember this young woman's eyes shining as she held him again and, and was able to take him away. Um, and then 48 hours later, they brought him back. Uh, and we weren't able to save him that time. Um, and she was absolutely crestfallen, of course. Um, and um, and the, 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 to see the family come together uh, at that time with the support, the realism, the realism that was there, the, the, the fact that they were all living below the poverty line. Um, and I made some inquiries at the time and found out that what was going on was that she was weaning him so she could go out and work in the fields. Um, and um, and the trouble was that they lived at the back of a sewer. And so the water that they used, they were sort of used to, and they may have boiled it, they may have heated it, I don't know, but the baby wasn't. And so that was where, that was what the problem was. But that was their living condition. And just seeing that, 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 uh, inability to break out of that environment and yet to carry on um, and in contradistinction the the sheer joy that they have when um, when uh, a new life emerges and, and the family's um, celebrations uh, and heartfelt they they swing from one to the other all the time and that's their life and in a funny way it, it changes them and um, and they have a direct contact with with existence and the meaning of existence that we never see, I don't think. Or we might see it occasionally when our own, when our own loved ones die. Um, but this happens to them so frequently. So, uh, it's uh, yes, it's it. Will that does that influence where Malika was coming from? Of course, of course, she was she was part of the village. She was there to help and support it. And there's, Aisha, her, as, as Malika calls her, her other mother, said right at the start, um, we all have to survive here. And, and that's a very dominant um, theme in the village. And our place in our community, our, our survival, I guess, I mean, it, it exists in that place, but it also exists in time. And now I want to I come to Kate, because following her mother's death, um, in fact, the, the book begins with her her mother's funeral. Kate has unofficially sort of moved into her mother's house and and an old friend challenges her on this and her unhappy memories of that house. Kate's relationship with Malika helps her to open up. But I wondered about this, this movement for her. Is it a movement forward? Is Kate accepting herself moving into the future or does she need to look back and have a renewed relationship with her past? Yes. I think that, um, I think that uh, one probably permits the other. So I don't think she sees her, her unlikely relationship with Mal- Malika as um, uh, anything more than 
her helping her out as she's done so often and as she intrinsically does to for all people. But if you if you notice, um, I'm sure you have the she she really has no friends. She, mm. she has nowhere to go at Christmas except for one invitation that she gets, um, and um, and then her her previous best friend um, also gradually comes into the picture, um, and a lot of that is due to the developing. Uh, um, sense of worth, I think, uh, that she has as a person by being with Malika. So so only when she's able to, even in a small way, accept herself as, as uh, more than what she was living, is she able to, I think, revisit and start to make peace with her past. Um, but And that's been a, a no-go zone for her for a long, long time, um, accentuated by the death of her mother. But but certainly um, present there long before. So that she couldn't have, I think, couldn't have gone back without the, the strength and support and personal validation um, that was established as she, um, as she and Malika became, um, well, part, part mentor, part teacher, I'm not sure who was teaching whom, but, um, but also part friends and, and a, deep, a deep friendship which, uh, by the end of the book, um, becomes important, of course. So many uh, wonderful insights to discover. Laurie, I'm, I'm conscious of the time. Uh, and be, So before I ask you a final question, can I ask, do we have time for a final, uh, final question? Yes, we do. Yes, we do, Andrew. Fantastic. Because I would, I would be remiss, as I, as I thought over my reading of As Swallows Fly, I noticed again a recurring idea, a recurring theme of the role of education in the novel from the very early moments of Malika teaching girls in the, in the village, her skills for sewing and for maths, the, the access that Malika's prodigious intelligence gives her, but also the way that is fostered Kate's relationship with her, her old school that begins uh, the, the sort of the relationship she has with Malika. And then also uh, at one point, Andrew, who is the new, um, new chief at the hospital, uh, his concerns yeah. about the hospital's educational research credentials. Education is so incredibly important in this novel, but it's not. It's not overt. It's it's obviously not the central concern. Um, as we've we've spent so much time discussing Kate and Malika's relationship, mm-hmm. but I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about that because it's extraordinary the way it's woven through the story. Yes, the the, the concept of, of well, I, I I kind of call it uh, mentoring. Um, I remember my my uh, old Tai Chi teacher used to say that you can you can show a class, but you can really only teach one person at a time. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. And uh, the as, as far as uh, as far as the that that teaching or mentoring component is present, Kate is absolutely dependent on it. Um, uh, and uh, in order to be able to to break out from from the usual um, or from the common ruts that she's found herself in and not been able to escape. So both Stephen and Andrew enable her to do that and support her. And I think it's a reflection on, on you know, the fact that none of us are living in isolation. We all do depend on others and we do depend on their support um, to uh, enable us to um, live as fully as we can. Um, that's not always there and that's, that's an important thing to recognise. 
Malika is is self taught. Uh, of course, she she almost doesn't need teaching. That's the, that's part of the the fact of it. But but she sees that others do, um, and she does require the opportunity. And Malika's character actually comes from a uh, a young girl in in the village that I visited, uh, which was not unlike the one in the book. Um, and um, she. Um, she was this incredibly bright 12-year-old who somehow, I don't know how, but somehow had managed to teach herself English. Um, and uh, everything that I did medically, she was across. She could see it. She understood it. Um, she uh, was truly gifted. And yet I could see that unless something changed, unless some wondrous thing happened as occurs in in the, the novel, that her plight was going to be to stay in the village pretty much and it was a battle for survival. Um, and it, I asked the question, how many people uh, in this country are like that? Um, and, you know, we to, to a certain extent we take education for granted, um, but I don't think that... Um, uh, I don't think we perhaps always fully appreciate just what benefits it gives us and what opportunities it opens up. So both those aspects, so the, the, the general level and availability of education, but also the specific and and um, uh, critical need to have others around that do enable you to um, be fully who you are um, and support you in that endeavour, uh, they're, they're both crucial. Larry, thank you. Ta- thank you for taking the time for that last question. I am speaking with L.P. McMahon. His debut novel is As Swallows Fly, and I hope if you've gotten anything out of our conversation is that this book is a wonderful reflection on relationships and full of some incredible insights as well as, I mean, I, I hinted at just the incredible momentum um, that there is to be discovered in the story. Laurie, thanks so much again for taking the time this morning. Andrew, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. That's it for this great conversation with LP McMahon. Laurie's debut novel, As Swallows Fly, is out now from Ventura Press. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Subscribe in your podcast app. There are more than 100 episodes of The Great Conversations, and you will get a new Great Conversation every week. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft. Until then, happy reading. Bye now.